Joel 2, 23-32. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. And For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you water and abundant rain. The early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. And the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the days that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. For you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And then it will happen afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. Then everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is not one, but two promises of our sacred promises. Thanks be to God. The book of Joel is not well known. Apart from that famous passage cited in Acts 2, when the Jews from foreign lands spoke in unknown languages and no one had trouble understanding them, Some were amazed and accused them of being drunk, but Peter said, No, this is what the prophet Joel said. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But roughly 500 years before Peter took up these words, the prophet Joel penned them in a very different context. The book of Joel begins as the Murphy's Law of the prophetic books. At the beginning of Joel, anything that can go wrong has gone. 
Joel begins by calling attention to a series of not one, but four separate locust plagues, each one more devastating than the previous. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust devoured. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust devoured. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust devoured. But that's not all. Then the land is invaded by an army, one so powerful that the prophet describes its brutality in terms of a savage lion. Wake up, you drunkards, because a nation powerful and beyond number has invaded my land. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, its fangs like those of a lioness. But that's not all. The land is also hit with a drought of monumental proportions. What a terrible day. The day of the Lord is near. It comes like chaos from the Almighty. Isn't food cut off right before our eyes? The grain shrivels under the shovels. The barns are empty. The granaries lie in ruin because the grain has dried up. But that's not all. The effects of the drought lead to wildfires so powerful that they devastate the habitat and the animals begin to suffer terribly, causing the prophet to intercede with a desperate prayer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has completely destroyed the pastures of the wilderness and flames have burned all the trees of the field. Even the field's wild animals cry to you because the streams have dried up. The fire has completely destroyed the meadows of the wilderness. But that's still not all. The prophet envisions a coming day of judgment when God will lead a heavenly army to attack the land and the city. Chapter 2 begins with 11 verses that describe the march of this unstoppable army from the mountaintops across the land. They even scale the wall of Jerusalem as though it were not even the slightest obstacle. Yes, even 2,500 years ago, the prophet Joel sees that a wall won't stop anything. <laughs> I told you, the book of Joel plays out Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. The prophet responds to this devastation with a plea to the people to go to the temple and turn to Yahweh, their God. Because that God, not because that God is a God of vengeance and wrath who has to be appeased, but because of Yahweh's penchant for compassion and grace. Joel takes up Exodus 34, 6 and says to the people, Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. He multiplies loving kindness, and he changes his mind about evil. What happens next in Joel is triply surprising. First, we are never told how people responded to the prophet's call to repent and turn to Yahweh. We do not know whether they arose in mass to lay bare their souls before God or whether they just stared at the prophet in disbelief. 
We are not told whether they responded positively or negatively. Instead, Yahweh speaks. Second surprise, Yahweh speaks words of promise. Gone are the prophetic words of confrontation. Yahweh's promises reverse the situation from the previous part of the book on every front. Yahweh promises to veto Murphy's law. Yahweh promises he will send food and fertility in 2.19. Yahweh promises to remove the enemy who has attacked from the north in 2.20. Yahweh promises to send, the rain, send rain into the land, ending the drought in 2.23. Yahweh promises to refill the storage facilities, the threshing floors with grain, and the wine vats with wine and oil. Yahweh promises to repair the damage done by the same four locusts with which the book began. I will repay you for the years of devastation from the cutting locust, the swarming locust, the hopping locust, and the destroying locust. As a result, everything becomes right with Yahweh and Yahweh's people. It's the perfect Hollywood ending. And now comes the third surprise. This ending is not the end. The promise of an abundance of food, political security, and theological harmony is only a transitional word of preparation for an even grander vision for Yahweh's people. Immediately after the Hollywood ending comes the promise we heard from the mouth of Peter in Acts. Joel 2.28 recounts a second phase of promise, one that simply begins, and it will happen afterward. And Yahweh restores the land and the people, and then things really change. Distinctions of gender, age, and class will disappear for those who worship Yahweh. Yahweh will pour out his spirit on all flesh so that women and men can prophesy, which means to speak on behalf of God. The young and the old will see prophetic visions and even male and female slaves will receive Yahweh's spirit. As a result, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Yeah, that didn't happen. Judaism did not allow women into the temple, not in the time of Joel, not in the time of Jesus, not for nearly two millennia. Slavery and indentured servitude continued, both in Judaism and in Christianity. Slavery is less prevalent today, but pockets persist. Even after the events at Pentecost that are so often cited as the birth of Christianity, the equality of women in ecclesial settings did not shift much for nearly two millennia. In very many ways, we are still working to open doors for women in churches. It has happened in some places, among some communities of faith, but not others. We still live and work in hope, but after 2,500 years, this speech is no longer a prophetic prediction. 
It's a strategic play. By now you may be wondering, what does the song about winter have to do with this sermon? Well, the song describes life after the promises. I wrote this song as a young 20-something-year-old in January of 1980, nearly 40 years ago. I'd finished one semester of seminary, but a knee operation and the, the previous summer had taken most of my money, so I had to sit out the semester and work full-time as the assistant janitor at a church roughly three miles from my apartment. I awoke early this day to find five inches of snow had covered the ground the previous evening. There was no way that my 13-year-old car with its balding tires was going to get me to work that day. So I set off to work on foot. As I did, I looked around me and took in the sheer beauty of a city bathed in winter's telltale sign and clothed in a thick overcoat of nature's morning dew. I saw the tree branches silhouetted against the freshly fallen snow and the way the branches bent beneath the weight. You have to understand, in high school and college, I was a young idealist. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make my life count for something. I was 23 years old and had already lived longer than my biological father. He was killed when he was 22. I grew up in a time when racial justice, civil rights, and the Vietnam War filled the airwaves. I believed Martin Luther King when he said, when he paraphrased the words of the abolitionist preacher Theodore Parker from a sermon delivered in 1853, King said in 1967, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But I was impatient. I wanted to bend the arc faster harder. Knee surgery in the summer of 79 and impending poverty by the winter of 1980 slowed me down, made me take stock and reevaluate. I never claimed to be Martin Luther King, but I wanted to be. Slowly it dawned on me, that's never going to happen. Years later, a line from a song by Harry Chapin resonated with me when he looked at his own life and said, a tame and toothless tabby can't produce a lion's roar. But in 1980, while walking through the snow, I was still in transition. The moment of this walk had a profound impact. I came to realize I had to slow down. I could not accomplish a lifetime of work in a few short years. I had to live in the present even while I leaned into the future. 
And yet, in many ways, I still looked at life in black and white, wrong or right. It would take longer to learn to see life in color and to learn that gray is often the most prominent color in the moral universe. Now, nearly 40 years on, my older self would like to say some things to my younger self who wrote this song. You shouldn't have been so hard on the merchant who shoveled the snow from his sidewalk. He was only trying to make a safe walkway for his customers, and he had to make a living. You saw children playing war with non-lethal weapons, but many children their age had to take up arms as adults, and the world still suffers from military conflicts. Most importantly, my older self would say to my younger self, you have become one of those round white men. But my older self would also say, do not confuse my gray hair for apathy. I still want to be on the right side of history. I still want to see the arc of the moral universe bend in the right direction. But life gets complicated and busy. I no longer need to roar like a lion, but I still want to help the least of these and become one of the lambs of God. I don't march in political rallies, but I'm proud to have been a member of two Baptist churches who have had four women pastors between them. I no longer need to try and save the world. But I do hope to leave my little corner a little better than when I found it. I no longer dream of becoming a grand orator who can stir the souls of all who listen. On my good days, it's enough to aim higher. To try to be George Bailey, the character of the 1940s movie, who learned how to see, to see how the little kindnesses he did rippled across the lives of those with whom he came in contact. The older me would also say to the younger me, you got two things right. First, your heart was in the right place. Peace and justice are more noble goals than money and power. Second, it is important to stop and look and listen. God speaks in the stillness. God speaks in the beauty. Finally, the older me would tell the older me, don't give up. Remember where you've come from. Be kind to your younger self. It's how you got here. Keep the goals before you 
while you still push forward. Joel's vision did not come to pass in Joel's lifetime, nor in the lifetime of Peter, and it still hasn't been realized fully in Peter's church. On the other hand, if you look and listen, you can sometimes feel the Spirit of God moving among your sons and daughters, and you can see the dreams of the old and the young come to fruition in pockets. I will simply close with the words of Carrie Newcomer. I offer these words as a prayer and an admonition. The empty self still hears the call. To live in the center of the ache and awe, it's there the hope of the world shines. And yes, there is still time. So today, I'll drop stones into the river, and the current takes them out into forever. And the truth is, most of us will never know where our best intentions go. And I'll still drop another stone.